Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode is called Nancy Drew in Ancient Rome. Caroline Lawrence came for coffee and we had a chat about getting started with your story. We talk about her very successful children's series called The Roman Mysteries, which is where the title of this episode comes from, and many of her favourite writing tips from her new book, How to Write a Great Story. She should know, because Caroline has published over 30 books for children. The Roman Mysteries were televised on the BBC. She's written about ancient Rome, ancient Britain and the Wild West, but as you'll hear, her greatest love is movies. We recorded this conversation in November 2019. Links to the resources we mention are listed in the show notes, so please look them up if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here today with Caroline Lawrence, And I'm very pleased to have Caroline here today because she has written so many children's books. We'll be talking about those. And she's also the recent author of How to Write a Great Story, which I have here in front of me. And we're going to be talking about that too. So hello, Caroline, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sophia. It's lovely (laughs) to be here. And as you may hear, we're both going to be drinking our coffee as we chat uh, because it is the middle of the afternoon uh, here in London. And uh, so you might hear our coffee cups clunking up and down. (laughs) Caroline has written The Roman Mysteries, which is really why I wanted her to be here today, because I am a massive fan of these books and I'm constantly trying to put them in the hands of children. Um, They're a really exciting mystery adventure series with, with so much classical world knowledge in there as well. I've learned more about the classical world from reading those than pretty much anything else. Oh, thanks. Um, and there are, are there 17 in the There are 17 scene? plus two volumes of short stories to fill in the, the little gaps and things like that. So um, there are those and there are also the Pinkerton Mysteries that you've written, Time Travel Diaries and now How to Write a Great Story. And I've got two separate spin-offs of the Roman Mysteries. They're the Roman, the Roman Mystery Scrolls, which is for younger children, and then the Roman Quests, which is a kind of spin-off of the Roman Mysteries, which we can talk about later if you want. Fantastic. So many, many books for children to enjoy. In fact, how many have you written altogether? I, I was counting the other day. I think it's about 35. That is pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, in, in 20 years. Yes, quite. Because I write about two books a year. So I should have 40. And in fact, I have written 40. It's a couple are still in a drawer or on the computer somewhere. You write twice as fast as I do. I'm very impressed. So just to tell... You all who are listening, a little bit about Caroline, and Caroline, please correct me if any of this is wrong. Caroline studied English literature and then classics at Berkeley in California. Well, I kind of dabbled at Berkeley. It's great in America. You can just do testers. So um, I actually, um, I started off at Santa Barbara, then had a gap year. And on my gap year, I read a book that changed my life, which was Mary Reynolds' The Last of the Wine, a historical novel set in ancient Greece. And when I went back to California, I transferred to Berkeley and signed up for a Greek class because I was so, I'd become obsessed with ancient Greece because of this book. And I also read the Iliad the same time I was in Switzerland being an au pair. So um, I kind of started with, with Greek and then they said, oh, if you like Greek, you have to do Latin. We call it classics. So I kind of started with classics at Berkeley. And you were there for three years? Yeah, because I'd done one year at Santa Barbara, Mm -hmm. then took my gap year. And in America, usually um, university is four years. So I got my four years in, but I had that important gap year. 
But I never studied English, which is really interesting. I never had any courses about how to write or any, not even any proper really analysis of, of um, story growing up. Oh, well, at some stage, let's see if we can talk about how you learned all the things that I you learned. I will tell you no. how I learned. <laughs> um, and then you went on to Cambridge and you studied classics more there, didn't you? Well, yeah, I say to kids when I go to schools, um, when you really love a subject, you get good at it. And I... I managed to squeeze a Marshall scholarship to Cambridge to study classics. I was like the, I was on the waiting list, mm-hmm. and there are thirty people I think every year who go uh, to any British university from America, and I was on the waiting list. But someone who got an even better scholarship um, took that instead, and so there, a place became available. So I literally squeezed in at the bottom. But again, you know that that changed my life. I've been here ever since. And so you went on to be a teacher, I guess, and then then you got distracted by by your sister, was it, who gave you this what idea of writing? What happened was, Cambridge was wonderful, but it was frankly like a bucket of cold water on my enthusiasm, because it was too academic for me. And what I wanted, the reason I'd started studying Greek and Latin was I want a time machine to transport me back to that world. Mm. And one of the best things is if you can read Greek and Latin, you can get in the head of someone who lived 2,000 years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, more. And that just blew my mind. And I loved, I I think um, anyone who wants to write for children, I learned this being a primary school teacher, um, they love the concrete world, the world of taste and smells mm. and touch and food and how you go to the loo and stuff like that. And that's what I wanted. And Cambridge didn't give me that. And I was quite disillusioned. So I, I, I didn't carry on with academia as I'd originally planned, but I stayed in England. And one of my other undergraduate friends at Cambridge, a, a guy, said... Um, Oh, well, we're all going off to be management consultants and stockbrokers. That's what I did after Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. I was a stockbroker for a year. Oh. And if you could think of a career that would totally be in diametrical opposition to my gifts and my talents and my leanings, it would be being a stockbroker. I wasn't the world's greatest management <laughs> consultant, I have to say. <laughs> but I met my first husband there, um, got married, and we moved to Essex, and I had my son, and... Um, about five years later, I was, uh, our marriage broke up, long story, moved back to London with my son, and he started going to school in London. And I started coming in just to help as a parent with his classes, uh, teaching art at first. And they said, oh, you're, it was an independent school. They said, oh, you're a natural teacher. You know, can we pay you to teach? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's how I fell into teaching. And I loved it. And I taught for about 10 years here in London, not just art, but I, I said, can I do a taster class in Latin? And we used to do really fun things. It was before Minimus, that great Latin course that kids can now do. So I made my own course and used the Cambridge Latin course, which is the orange book with Caecilius, if anyone remembers uh-huh. that. We'd recline on the floor and have banquets and, you know, who wants to be a slave? I do, I do. <laughs> um, so I've, I kind of recaptured my love of classics by being a primary school teacher. And then um, about 10 years after starting teaching, I was utterly exhausted. When you're a teacher, you have no time to read books, watch TV, or go to the movies, which are my three favorite things. And I went home to California and I was thinking of trying to write a screenplay because movies are my real passion. Mm -hmm. And I had an idea about a slave girl in Pompeii. And my sister said, it was 1999, August 1999, She said, why don't you write a book for kids set in Pompeii? And it was like a light bulb went on over my head. Bing! 
Nancy Drew in Ancient Rome, because I loved Nancy Drew Mysteries when I was growing up. Yeah. I loved Ancient Rome, and I immediately thought, it can be a whole series. I can have a girl detective who lives in Ancient Rome, and each series can explore a different theme, a different aspect. Each book in the series can explore mm-hmm. a different aspect. Like, the first one will be Roman life, and the second one can be slaves and patrons. The second one will be the eruption of Vesuvius, slaves and patrons, religion in Ancient Rome medicine the fire and I have and it and as soon as she said Pompeii I thought Vesuvius and the eruption which gives you a, not just a year but a month and a day yeah and suddenly I realized I'm in the last year the first years of the Emperor Titus and so I'm solidly grounded in a time and a place with this idea and I remember thinking if I can pull this off it'll be a hit <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Enormous ignorance and 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 egotism and vanity. No, it was more enthusiasm. But I didn't realize how hard it would be, or it wasn't hard. In fact, well, Well, this is what is annoying about your story, Caroline Lawrence. Is I then read that two years later the book was published, which is insanely fast. This is the thing that'll really get you. I wrote it in the last two weeks of the summer holiday. I wrote the whole first. I've never written a book that fast since. I knew it was August that I got the idea. I came home to London. I, and because I had already learned, to go back a bit, I'd been studying a Hollywood scriptwriter called John Truby, who mm-hmm. has a plot structure course. And I'd been trying to write a screenplay using that. And it taken a year or two. But I, I got down the basics of what I found to be a really useful plot structure, which we'll talk about in a minute if you want. Mm, yes. Because I had that structure, I wrote the first book in two weeks. I then needed an agent so I said to my husband who just published a book a non-fiction book on um, on interior design and decorating and architecture in London I said um, his his co-author had just be set up as an agent I said would she read my book and she did and she'd never published any fiction before or any or maybe never no children's fiction but she said this is great just change this this and that and within three or four months we had a book deal a five book deal Dear listener, this never happens. (laughs) But you know what? I was riding the wave of J.K. Rowling's success with Harry Potter. Harry Mm -hmm. Potter had just become a big thing. Yeah. And I think all of us writers who came in at the beginning, around the year 2000, we were riding that enormous wave of, of suddenly children's fiction is cool and kids are reading it in the playground and they want a book with series and things. So... I do attribute a lot of my success to blind ignorance, <laughs> to it's, huge optimism, and to J.K. Rowling. Well, I was inspired by the first Harry Potter. I read about it before it was published. It encouraged me to give up my management consultancy job <laughs> and write, but I didn't write for children. Uh, it took me 10 years to work out that that oh. would be a good idea. So <laughs> 10 years later, I followed you. Well, I write for children because... That's actually my mentality, because mm-hmm. I tried to write the screenplay for adults, obviously, but when she said for kids, so I said, okay, I'll just write it like I'd write it for me, but with less, less sex and vi- no sex and violence. In fact, it's a huge relief not to ha- have to write sex scenes. <laughs> and I just wrote it essentially for me, because I think I have an 11-year-old mentality. I'm, I'm in, I just want the world, I still don't know how the world works. And that's why I write mystery stories is the mystery to me is how does the world work? And who are, what are people and what are they doing here? And what's it all about? So 
for me, and, and someone once asked me, they said, how do you write for children? I said, I don't write for children. I write for myself. And it just turns out that 11-year-olds like reading it. Yeah, I think you can't take children too seriously when you're writing for them, by which I mean, um, you, you have to write as if they are the most important, the most demanding audience in the world, don't you? And but again, I write for me. And so I'm never talking down to them because yeah. I'm just writing what I want to read. And um, I think kids appreciate not being talked spoken down to or Absolutely. you know they just want it. it it's it's the most honest way I can write really and I think often I mean there's some writers who are so talented who can write for any age group like Anthony Horowitz for yes. example oh yes. my gosh he's such a genius I've just been quoting him earlier today I, something I'm doing he, my favorite first line is one of his and uh, but um but I'm not. I'm not a natural. I'm not a natural writer. Actually, it may sound strange, but I don't think I'm a natural writer. I've had to teach myself um, how to write by all these little tricks and tropes and little formulae and things. And yes, of course, I use my intuition and my instinct. But I even had to teach myself how to use how to do that. So some people can sit down and just write, and I cannot do that. I have to know how to do it. That is a perfect segue, thank you very much, into what I wanted to talk about next. So you mentioned John Truby, and I sense that's where your breakthrough came in understanding technique. So tell me how you discovered him. Okay, great. Yeah, because as I said, I never um, did any writing classes. I never did anything, even analysis. So I had, I just had this idea of being a screenwriter and getting an Oscar for best screenplay and stuff. And then my sister said, write a book for kids set in Pompeii. But um, when I was studying Jewish and Hebrew studies, I came across these manuscripts about these monks in Syria in like the 10th century AD, and they did amazing things. So I thought, I want to write about them. So I wrote a book about an autistic boy. I'm very interested in psychology as well. An autistic boy in a monastery who sees visions and has this amazing interior world set in 6th century Byzantium. And um, because, you know, write about something no one else has written about before. (laughs) And when I read it back, I thought, oh my gosh, this is all description and then a little bit of plot squished in at the end. And I realized I don't know how to write plot. Mm-hmm. I was okay at uh, settings because I love the 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 world, you know, the tactic, the, the the tangible world, the smells, the sights, the sounds. That's what I'm obsessed with, daily life and stuff. So I could write all that, um, and I could write characters because I've stolen characters, archetypal characters from myths and movies. We can talk about that later. Yes. But I realized I didn't know how to write plot, and what I needed was like a train tracks to keep put all my ideas on to have a good story. And almost just exactly as I had that realization, a friend told me about um, a series of uh, a course, an audio course he was taking called Great Story Writing or Story Structure by Mm -hmm. John Truby, a Hollywood screenwriter. And I said, oh, I want that. I've got to have it. And it was like 10 tapes or 12 cassette tapes. This was in 1999. Uh, No, this was in 1997 of about uh, 90 minutes each, so about 20 hours of tapes. Mm -hmm. My math is not very good. And I said, oh, please, can I listen to them? Because he was talking about things like the inciting incident and the collection of allies and 
crossing the threshold and I thought oh this is what I need and he said no I couldn't possibly loan it out and I said please 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 and he said no I couldn't possibly loan it out and I begged and I pleaded and finally I got him to loan it to me for just one day I said I'll copy all the tapes onto a spare blank cassettes and I'll give it back to you within 24 hours and I vowed that if I ever got published I would buy the course properly etc etc which I did so I listened to those tapes and it was a revelation to me. Mm-hmm. It was because he was talking about Hollywood story structure, um, movies, and I realized that a filmmaker, those movies cost so much, you've got to get the story right. And essentially, Truby talks about 22 plot steps, but he says of those 22, seven are essential in every story. And I thought, how, how can every story have seven beats? Um, but it works. It really does. And that was when I go into schools, I tell kids, that's my magic formula. That's my secret elixir. That's my holy grail is Truby's seven plot beats. And I tell them the seven plot beats and they can remember them because um, what I do is I usually just describe the events of the first chapter of my first book, The Thieves of Ostia, where um, that my Roman girl's dad's signet ring has gone missing and he has to find it. So the seven steps are simply the prob- The hero has a problem. So step number one is the problem. But mm-hmm. in brackets, he has a need. So the problem's the thing he knows about, and the need is the thing he needs to learn to live a better life. Some authors call that the outer journey and the inner journey. So one is problem need. Two is desire. The hero wants something that will solve his problem. Three is one that you sometimes forget about, the opponent. And the opponent is someone who clashes with your hero as they go for their desire to solve the problem. And they don't have to be evil. And in my story of the missing signet ring, it's a magpie. So he just likes bright, shiny things. Can it just be a, a, an obstacle? Does it have to be... It can be an, an obstacle. Um, but in my second book, when I threw that, all that away and thought, I don't need that anymore, I made... The volcano an opponent mm-hmm. and I had to rewrite that book 43 times and it took a year rather than two weeks uh-huh, okay. <laughs> and the opponent can be an inner opponent but the thing is in fact you're going to have many opponents and sometimes it can be an obstacle but um, for kids especially it's great to have um, a, um, what is the word an active opponent a an active human, not human, a sentient opponent. Right. Um, because the volcano is just sitting there and one of these days I'm going to explode and even I am not sure entirely when that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. But it can be a robot like Wall-E or a bug like mm. from A Bug's Life, anything like that. But for kids especially, and I think for kids writing too, it's good to have a strong opponent. Having said that, the book I'm working on now, I don't have a strong <laughs> opponent, but we'll come. So first three steps are the beginning. You can set them up in the first page, even paragraph. The problem, the desire, the opponent. The middle of the story is the plan. Your hero has to come up with a plan to defeat the opponent, to get the desire to solve the problem. Often involves a journey, the collection of allies, lots of fun stuff. The beginning of the end is the battle. That's mm-hmm. step five. That's where the opponent and the hero finally clash for the final time to determine who gets the object of desire. And um, step six is the the knowledge. Truby, Truby calls it the self-revelation, which is actually much better than knowledge, but it's a little long for kids. Mm-hmm. And it's when the hero finally learns something. And step seven is the new level, just a higher or lower level. And what's beautiful about that structure, I first used it just to have something to hang my ideas on. 
But it's so beautiful because it doesn't just take up the whole arc of the book. It's every chapter, every scene has those steps. Well, I've heard you saying this, and this really interests me. So scene by scene, you're thinking about those seven yeah, beats. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're not. You instinctively know it. You've got the desire. And often the desire, you don't state, need to state the problem because the hero has a desire. I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who said, give every character in your story a desire, even if it's just for a glass of water. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in fact, I won't quote authors who said it because I'm sometimes wrong, but that's a great thing. Desire is such a strong thing. We all have desires, big, little, medium, long-term, short-term. There's going to be a desire, a struggle to get it, and then either they get it or don't, or learn something or don't, and they're either higher or lower. That's something from Robert McKee, who I generally find useless. Mm. But one thing I do love is he says every scene should end on either a high or a low, a I think a positive or a negative charge and the next scene is going to end start there and end on the other so if you end on a lower level that chapter is going to end where the hero is on the lower level they yeah. might end on a higher level though sometimes I have them keep being cliffhangers so they're always <laughs> a few low levels before you get back to levels. a high um, so yeah so but but the beautiful thing about that is that I realized that every day we have little desires and we have little opponents or they're often our friends and family. And I say to kids, you know, you might have a desire to get into the, the bathroom first to use it before your big sister or to get a good, good seat on the bus or to get a good mark in class or to, you know, um, win the football match. You know, these are all your opponents aren't evil in those cases. They're your friends, your family, your colleagues, your fellow students. But it's we love it. There's something about a battle where we need to battle to learn something. And I know that I remember the questions I got wrong on my final exams more clear. I remember those facts more clearly than I remember yeah. all the things I got right. And there's something about human nature, about our animal nature even, that we need to have a battle. And of course, you don't want to battle in real life, but um, that's how we learn. Yes. <laughs> and it's it's there's something wonderful. It's like being indoors in a thunderstorm, but but reading about somebody else's battle can yeah. be so restful when you're oh, not yeah. going through oh, a battle. Oh, it's fantastic! It's fantastic, and it's great to read about other people's battles because, you know, um, Roger Ebert said that movies are empathy machines. Um, we can get in someone else's head, but yeah. books are far more empathy machines because you're actually a movie. You're sitting there, and the screen is there. And I love movies. Don't get me wrong, but in a book, you're in the head of the person. I love that empathy machines. To me, that's what children's books are all yes, about. Yes, absolutely. It's how I gained any empathy that I have, and it's how I try to pass it on. Absolutely. That's yeah. why we need books. Is children who live whatever life they're living, they're in their own little world. Mm. A book will take them into someone else's head, and that's what makes us compassionate. Yes. And you know, human really. And you never lose that. I think. Um, but I noticed another thing you did in that first chapter of that book that you, you talk about is you perhaps just instinctively raise the stakes. So it's just a girl following a bird, isn't it? Yeah, still, the bird yeah. has stolen a ring and the girl yeah. is, is trying to find out where it is. And the bird flies off over the back garden wall. But you being you, you've put the back garden backing onto a graveyard. Yeah. Oh, and you know, this is one of the, this is one of the tropes that I love is crossing the threshold. Um, and after I... I, I, I meant to say, going back, I, I listened to the John Truby tapes over and over and over, rewrote the story about the autistic boy into another screenplay, and which another character became the main character because a screenplay's got to be 
I took the book about the autistic boy, made it into a screenplay. You can't have an interior life, a hero who's just in his head. Well, you mm-hmm. can, but it was hard. So another character became the main character. But in those two years, in that year that I took to write the screenplay, which wasn't very good, I learned plot structure. And then when my sister said, write a book for kids set in Pompeii, I knew the structure I was going to use. And and later, after I realized how powerful that structure was, I learned other story structures like the hero's journey, mm. um, also known as the monomyth. If you just Google monomyth, that's very useful. Other people like Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. Yes, absolutely, um, which I think has 42 beats, 43. Yeah, but, or it's, no, it's it's a bit fudgy. For, I love Blake Snyder for all his little tricks and tropes and his insights. Me too. I love the themes. He's, he's got a very unique way of thinking about and, the themes. Yes, and the he's genres. the one. Oh, yeah, we could talk about him all day. I just, he, he's great. And he's got a wonderful, he sadly died prematurely at the age of about 48 or 49, about 10 years ago. But um, you can sense his generous personality his loving personality coming out he's such a generous man just through his books I'm sorry I never met him but crossing the threshold is one of my favorite steps because John Truby doesn't like the three-act structure but almost all the other Hollywood screenwriters do Mm. and I had this wonderful revelation is that um, the hero has a problem has a desire then gets a call to adventure And about a quarter of the way through any story, the hero leaves their ordinary world and goes, puts the plan into effect, that's step four, goes on a journey to get the desire. And that moment when the hero leaves his ordinary world and goes into the world of adventure, for Flavia, it's just when she steps over the back threshold of her back door, steps out her back door into the graveyard. Yes. Where there is danger, there are kidnappers there and wild, half wild dogs and ghosts and evil spirits and stuff. So the stakes are raised. But it's that world of adventure. And I tell kids um, in movies, that's often the most visually impressive moment of a film. For example, you you all know the moment when a black and white tornado drops Dorothy into Technicolor Munchkin land, mm. or when Mr. Carl Fredrickson lifts off with a thousand helium balloons in Pixar's Up, or my favorite film of the last decade or so, Wall-E, when he literally leaves the Earth hanging onto a spaceship and goes through the rings of Saturn and stuff. And so it can be just stepping out your door, but it can be going into this brand new world. And um, that's such a powerful step. And then the middle of the story, the the second act is double the length of the first act usually. And there's a midpoint between those two, the middle act. Yes, absolutely. And then at the end of the second act, the hero often returns back to the ordinary, their ordinary world. But now they're different because this is classic mythic structure. The journey has taught them to be the person they're meant to be. And whether they got the thing or not, the MacGuffin, which is one of the little (laughs) tropes in my book, the thing that they just go for. That the author just throws in so there's something there. (laughs) Yeah, because the journey and the battle is the important thing. And it's in the journey and the meeting friends, the battling that the hero discovers who they are, what their gifts are, what their talents are. And that's what life is, isn't it? You see, and you did all of this having read Truby, and when <laughs> I I wrote three detective stories in the ten years that that you were um, already being published, and and was not, I hadn't read Truby, um, and then I wrote Threads, and I you know I often tell the story. I wrote it seventeen times before I sent it off to the Times Chicken House competition, and then I revised it seventeen more times. So I was on draft thirty four um, before I was happy with it. 
And what I was doing was inserting beats, finding a midpoint, yep. working yep. out all of these things, yep. but the hard way, yep. by doing it wrong, realizing it didn't work, doing it wrong again, realizing it didn't work. I didn't know any of the stuff. And so now, I mean, I'm glad I did. For me, yeah. it took me 10 years longer than you. Um, I'm glad I did because I, I, I kind of enjoyed that, just working it out for myself, learning it organically. Um, but one of the reasons I want to do the podcast series and talk to people like you is for people who don't to want save to them from writing those all ten years, those thirty-four drafts is is a step up. And what I always say to the students that that I teach now is that these are like recipes, and yes, they work. Yes, and you don't have to follow them if you've got a better idea. Yeah, do it. And I can point to a fantastic work of art that breaks every rule, every yes. suggestion. Yes that we come across apart from maybe the midpoint because that just is the thing it's it's bizarre how often in the absolute center yeah. of every piece of work something yeah. changes but but yes so students i would say please do not read save the cat and do something that does 42 things yeah. exactly when yeah. blake snyder says yeah. because it will be so formulaic yeah. it will be dull yeah but it's handy to know what works and well, these the seven steps you've described they just do they make readers want to turn the page and and in fact I think some people instinctively do that. Yeah. And but you need to know what you're doing because <laughs> you can, some people can just instinctively write a great story every time. Um, but I need to know what I'm doing. And in fact, although I plot these out like a recipe, mm. like any good recipe, you improvise, don't you? Yeah. You put in a little more of this or a little more of that. And then halfway through, you think, no, I'm going to make it a completely different pudding or something. Yeah. And I've often, you know, it's I think of it as a roadmap as well. Um when I was writing without structure, I'd go off on some interesting character tangent. Yes. And if you were going, if you were driving to Edinburgh, you'd want a rough map of where you're going. And you can take side routes and things, but at least you know you're heading in the right direction. And in, for example, in my third book, the person I planned to be the opponent, I kind of fell in love with him. So I made someone else the opponent. You know, it's just, <laughs> it just keeps yeah. you on track. It's another thing that screenwriting does, though, doesn't it, is enable you to, to change quite dramatically what you what you want to do with it if you can see that it's not working so you might rewrite the, the track eventually yeah and, and but but Truby does say that if there's a problem at the end it goes right back to the beginning yeah. you know um, and I'm trying to fix something in my current book at the moment my work in project my WIP at the moment um, because the gods of course the gods of writing because I had the temerity to publish a book called How to Write a Great Story <laughs> they've made this book the hardest book I've you ever had to be punished it goes without saying but um uh, so I'm having lots of fun I'm on my like third draft and by draft I mean you know each each draft has several incarnations you know about 50 incarnations where I save a draft and then now I'm on number 12 and now I'm on number 13. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, one of the things about writing is you have to stand back and then get in close and then stand back. But you've got to stand back and see if the whole structure of the story works and almost be able to pitch it to someone in an elevator and tell them what the story is about. Absolutely. Um, and you make it sound easy, but you also... <laughs> Um, as we both know, it, it isn't to do it well. It's, we can help ourselves by giving ourselves these signposts as we go along. Yeah, but it's, yeah. um, oh gosh, somebody, I was hearing somebody. Oh, I know. Russell T. Davis has recently, when at a time oh, of recording, yeah, done that. his Desert Island yeah, Discs, yeah. which I just thought was an absolutely yeah. wonderful piece of radio. And he was talking about how, you know, the ideas are always so fantastic in his head. But 
actually writing them down word after word after word is is pedestrian and depressing and I thought gosh you know if even Russell T Davis feels that then we are all allowed to find that the process of doing it difficult even if we know what we're trying to do. I I like writing but I think what stops us is I had this other revelation as I was an art teacher and um I read this amazing book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, and it talks about a hugely simplified idea of the brain as the left hemisphere, which is the verbal, logical, um, academic side, the little voice in our head, the critical voice, and the right side is the visual, creative side. And it's um, this woman, Betty Edwards, who wrote the book, said, when you're into the mode of drawing, you go quiet because you're in the nonverbal part of the brain which is the part where you're really looking and seeing and you lose track of time. Mm -hmm. And our left brain is a real tyrant. He's it's very bossy and it doesn't want to not be in control. And when we sit down to write, I think what happens is that that's when you use the two sides together, the left side for the words and the right side for the imagination. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so hard to sit down and start. Once you start, writing you often find things you didn't know you were going to write coming out don't you on a good day you do on a good day you do absolutely and also the things like the morning pages that stream of consciousness writing from julia cameron's book um the artist's way is really useful because that stream of consciousness where you're writing with your hand on a piece of paper and not stopping to edit bypasses the critical left brain too and that's a great way to get out ideas but this is something you talk about in how to write a great story isn't it it's mostly alphabetical isn't it so somebody can just work yeah 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 that's right the morning pages is on the first part of how to write a great story is how I got started and how I write and some samples of of workshops I do in schools very Mm. simple writing workshops and step by step Um, but then I've, I've collected over a hundred little tricks and tips and tropes that I love, like um, some of the, like Save the Cat, which is one of Blake Edwards, I'm sorry, not Blake, <laughs> Blake Snyder's um, tricks, um, that when you first introduce the hero, we don't know anything about him. So have him do something nice, like save a cat stuck up a tree. So that we're on his side. <laughs> yeah, well, so right, right, these on days. his side. <laughs> and you'll see that in so many movies. Um, oh, another one talking about the midpoint is he's got one called Sex at 60, which I couldn't put in <laughs> How to Write a Great Story. He's discovered that almost in every story, there's a consummation in the middle at the midpoint. 60 is mm-hmm. the midpoint because most screenplays are 120 pages, yeah. which each page equals a minute. So 60 is the midpoint. And it's so funny because now every time... I get halfway through a book. Sure enough, there's the kiss, or they make love for the first time. And same for movies. You can almost stop it and see the you kiss. You can. It's, it's extraordinary so what, what happens at that that point. Um, so yeah, I've got all those little um, tricks and tropes. And the morning pages. This is maybe the best way for you to start if we're talking about starting. Yeah. And you think, I want to write a book. I know I'm an author. I want to write for kids. I can't think where to start. Um, get The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And... Um, you can you don't even have to read the whole thing but just do the morning pages which is essentially you write for 20 minutes or so or three three sheets of paper on one of those big um, a4 pads and write continuously and if you can't think what to write just think I can't think what to write I can't think what to write but you find after a while you just write at first you write actually who you're angry with and what you're disappointed with Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like getting the gunk out it's almost like a confessional yeah and you shred those pages and every morning you get up first thing but 
Just spend a penny. Don't even brush your teeth. Sit down and write while you're before you do anything else. Those those three pages are for twenty minutes. And I've got Alexa at home. I say Alexa twenty. Set the timer for twenty minutes, and I write mm-hmm. when I'm blocked. And she'll say twenty minutes is now up. Um, it's amazing. Within a few weeks, I know it sounds like a long time, but sometimes there's a lot of gunk that has to get out. Yeah. Within a few weeks, weeks you suddenly start find you're writing about a hobbit who lived in a hole or something like that, something you didn't even know was in you. And that's what's in you. That's one of the ways you get started writing. And also by training yourself to write for 20 minutes every morning, as religiously as brushing your teeth, you're training yourself to be a writer. It is. It's just word after word on a it's, page. It's word it? after word. But there are moments when it can be fun. Yeah. Um, but it's always that battle, even for you and I, who've been writers for, what, 20 years plus. Yeah. It's still the battle to sit down and start doing it, isn't it? It is. It really <laughs> helps to have these tips and tricks. And, and and with this book, I mean, it's it's packaged very much for children. Mm-hmm. But you do say it's for anyone from 8 it's, to 80. It's and all my I best tips. I completely agree. It's all my best tips. The only one yeah. it doesn't have is sex at 60. <laughs> oh, and it doesn't have... Um, oh, there's a great one that people were talking about when Game of Thrones was on. Mm. Um, sexposition. Exposition is an information dump, right? When you have to explain where the jewel, where the MacGuffin is and how to get it so your heroes can go on the heist. Um, Someone realized that what George Martin, G.R.R. Martin (laughs) did, is he has his his exposition while people are having sex. Such a great idea. (laughs) And I came up with snacksposition, which is when I have the exposition over a meal or fun or disgusting food. So I call it snacksposition. That is such a children's writing (laughs) thing. That's so clever. (laughs) So I love all those little tricks. And you start to spot them. And if your chapter is flagging, you can use them. You know, they're little tricks you can use. I often say, I've just been giving a class on dialogue, is get people talking, uh, funnily enough, about exposition. Um, If in doubt, start a chapter with people talking. I find that one. And you know what? Talking is show... They say show, don't tell. Mm. But for some reason, talking is showing because you can hear it in your brain. And again, it's the right. If we, if our words, left brain function can make flickers of images in your right brain and make voices and sounds in your right brain, that's what writing does. That's transporting your reader into a world. And so that's why dialogue is great. And I have, um, I've just come back from doing, let me warn you readers, when I was an early, when I was just starting out, I collected all these what I called speech markers. So I thought, I'm going to make my writing really fun. So instead of just, he said, and she cried, I'm going to have, um, she shrieked, he bellowed. Oh, whisper's okay. But it's the bellowed, shrieked, um, coughed, choked, um, screamed, expostulated. I was going to say that one. I like that one. (laughs) And I made a list of so many. And I've just come back from a writing a week uh, um, with some boys in a posh school in Wimbledon where I was being a writer in residence, Mm. which sounds really posh, but I was just doing writing workshops. And these boys are having their cool detectives shriek and scream and bellow. And I came up with a new trope, James Bond never shrieks. (laughs) But what I suggest is here's a really powerful way of getting description in with dialogue is what I call ninja description. And you've got a bit of dialogue. Instead of he said or she said, or he shrieked or she bellowed, put a little bit of description like he hung his head and then the dialogue. And that that little action, he hung his head, makes a little image in your mind of him hanging his head. It gives you a bit of emotion. One boy came up with a great thing. Um, 
His hero comes downstairs and his mother says, Good morning, sleepyhead, happy birthday, and she ruffled his hair. You don't need good morning, she said. Yep. All you need is good morning, sleepyhead, his mother ruffled his hair. That's what I do. <laughs> and ruffled his hair is such a great bit of ninja description because not only does it spark a little image of the fingers ruffling the hair, it sparks a tactile we can imagine those fingers on our head and it conveys a sense of affection, mm. of calm, of motherly love so much in a little bit of description beside the dialogue instead of she said happily or she greeted him cheerfully. So that is one of my best tips for, for people, any writer. To use. And once you've spotted that, you'll see it in all the best writing. All the best writers do that. I, I like that one. Um, I I always like Elmore Leonard saying, he said, she said, can be absolutely fine. Exactly, because they're invisible. Yes. And put all the all your writerly imagination into what they say, make that carry the emotion, which I think is, is a good tip too. Elmore Leonard doesn't just say, he said, and she said is fine. He says, you should only use <laughs> that. But I'm sorry, I can't do that. When I wrote my P.K. Pinkerton stories, which is set in the Wild West, I thought I'm just going to do he said, and she said, mm -hmm. like Elmore Leonard said. And my editor said, no way, you cannot do this. So I... I allow, laughed, shouted, mm. sighed, whispered, cried. Those are all fine. Yep. Because they're not. But it's one that any any speech marker or verb that pulls you out of the story, like bellowed. And if you're actually in the story visualizing it, hearing it, suddenly bellow is like a loud noise in your ear. Bellow is good sometimes, but not when it's inappropriate. You know, you've got to, you've got to be in that scene. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about um is the idea of getting that first draft finished yes because um it is the one thing that i try and teach my students if nothing else so i think already with talking about what you learned from truby that's really helped if you've got your seven beat structure you've got the impetus to tell the story um but I've worked with so many students who are really talented writers, but they've been writing the same thing for two or three years and they're perfecting... You mean working on the same project? The same project, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they're perfecting the middle section. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one thing that Neil Gaiman says, which I really love, is finish things. You have yeah. to learn how yeah. to end stories. And there's the satisfaction that you get from completing a whole project is is huge and it's part of your, your writing life. So I talk about the dirty draft. Yeah. Because the only way I can get through it without listening too much to that voice in my head that's the editor's going, oh, go back and write that bit better, yeah. um, is to think I'm going to write something really imperfect yeah. to the end. And then I'm going to go back and perfect it later. And do you have a method like that? I do indeed. Use? I call it the vomit draft. Yeah. <laughs> and I, was, I love listening to podcasts about um, film even more than books, because when I hear, especially if they're interviews with the filmmaker, I get stuff. And I mm, I do. think it was Ryan Johnson, but I can't find it, who did the latest Star Wars, screenplay mm. of the latest Star Wars. And I think, I think, and I'm not going to say it because I'll be wrong, but I think one of them talked about a vomit draft, just getting the draft out. And as soon as you say that, especially kids understand it, it's just like, Bleh! get it out on the paper, get it all down. Yeah. Um, and I say... Um, you know, give yourself permission to write a bad first draft. Exactly. John, it, John Green says, give, must, give yourself permission to suck. Yes, which I love. exactly. And some kids, kids in schools 
uh, today especially are taught to get so much right mm. that sometimes they're not allowed to kind of splurge and splash and be messy. Yeah. And so it's good to get that first messy vomit draft out. Then you can go back with your critical left brain that likes the grammar and the punctuation and knows all the tricks and tropes to polish it and look at the the overview to see if it hits the seven beats. Again, these stories, I've been reading some stories these boys wrote last week and one boy's story it was it was great, but something was missing, and I suddenly realized it was uh, an opponent. But right. as soon as I realized it needs an opponent, he's got people dying all over the place, right? People just randomly die. Yes. Um, for, first, the mother um, is almost killed in a car accident. These kids have dark minds, and they then do. at the and then at the end, the little girl who's the hero uh, falls off the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in Dubai, to her death. And I realized, you know, okay, if he wants to be dark, he maybe he's a natural horror writer. But I realized it's, it miss it missed an opponent, and I immediately came to him: have death be the opponent? Mm-hmm. Have somebody say? Oh, you saved your mother from dying, but someone's got to die. That's all you need to make that a great story. And so those seven steps sometimes will help you figure out what's going wrong. So you do the vomit draft, and then you can go and polish it and see where you've hit the beats and where you've missed them. And often if I'm talking, um, if someone's working on a project and I'm telling them the seven beats, they go, yeah, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that. Mm. And they know, yeah, I'm doing it right. Oh, but I don't have that one. And that can be the key to finishing your your draft. It sounds really useful. I've always struggled with openings of books. Just always, <laughs> Oh, I have <laughs> such a good tip for that. Steal an opening. I've, I've even tried that. <laughs> Believe me. But I think my problem was I didn't introduce opponents very early on mm. I just I never mm. have mm. and if I'd just be more disciplined with myself because mm. I like ultimately in my own book so far I like opponents that kind of sneak up on you who you think are your best friend for two-thirds of the book and then then you begin to realize oh no they're not so I've made it difficult for myself to get the story started really fast you don't need the opponent in the first line though I'll tell you a story about that in a minute but I think you do you don't even need the problem but you need the desire mm. and sometimes people say miss how can I start my first line I start start with so-and-so had a problem yep um Anthony Horowitz I referenced earlier in my favorite first line and I know you want to know what that I, is of course I do I was going it's to ask. from Stormbreaker yes when the doorbell rings at three in the morning it's never good news oh, yes I do love that line. that's a great first line actually my very favorite first line is um Jeffrey Archer she only stopped screaming when she died from <laughs> Cain and Abel just a great first line but anyway getting back to Anthony Horowitz I stole I borrowed and One of my tips is Frankenstein first lines, where you take a great first line Mm -hmm. and you just change a word or two. And I do that in writing workshops often, and we come up with some great ideas. But I kind of did that with my first Roman Quest book. That's the spin-off of the Roman Mysteries. And the first book of a four-book series is called Escape from Rome. And the first line is The Emperor's Men Came at Midnight. Ah, so you've got the you've got the opponent right there. Yes, the emperor's men came at me and a problem. And I mean, in that first line, you've already got like a problem and a and a potential desire. And off you go. And off you go. But I I kind of stole that from Anthony Horowitz. <laughs> let's face it. I mean, he's not going to sue me. It's just one line. And I don't talk about stealing in my book. I talk about magpieing ideas. Yeah. And in fact, I magpied the idea of the thieving magpie from my first book, The Thieves of Ostia, from Postman Pat. There was an episode with a magpie, so I got that from that. But yeah, openings, I would say, um, 
go to your bookshelf and find some openings you really like and just get a tip from that. And what about your actual process? So you've talked about the morning pages. That's an example of it. I'm always interested by people's process. So (laughs) do you have a typical writing day? I do. And the lovely illustrator of How to Write a Great Story has done a little graphic two-page spread of me and my day with me as a little comic character, a cartoon character. It's so cute. So I usually wake up early. I'm a morning person. I wake up as early as 5.30 with my head buzzing with ideas often. Um, I it's It varies, but at the moment my pattern is because I don't have kids at home and stuff. Um, I go and I do 20-minute yoga because mm-hmm. sitting on your bottom all day have to try to walk to and then I do like 10 minutes of prayer and meditation and then I go to my desk and I start to write however if I'm blocked I'll do the morning pages first thing before the yoga or anything I go to the table in the in our living room tell Alexa to give me 20 minutes and I write for 20 minutes and it may be I'm having a problem with this part of my story what can I do here's an overview of the story and I start to tell the story again what I'm writing Um, after I've done that I sit down at my desk in my my study which is next door to my bedroom and I try to write for a few hours and writing can be rewriting or it can be planning but I try to actually get into the text Mm -hmm. and write it um I usually finish by about midday that's my writing day yeah and um because in the afternoon I'm not so I get a bit sleepy in the afternoon um I often don't eat until about 10 in the morning though sometimes it's earlier um, so I have lunch at about midday, and then I, I will go for a walk, usually to my local cinema. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fill up with so more stories. it's about a 20-minute walk, <laughs> and I get so many ideas from films. And mm. just here's another tip that your, your listeners might like, is one of um, Blake Snyder's great tips is the opening image and the closing image mm. of a story. And um, we talked about openings. One, this was a real revelation to me. He calls stories a change machine. You want to see your hero change, either end up on a higher level or a lower level. That's very satisfying, even if it's a tragedy and they're on a lower level. What's frustrating is if they end up on the same level. So we've written your first paragraph or page. Try writing the end. Yeah. I often do that because I then you're going to figure out how they get there. And at least, again, you've got that end in sight. Whenever I go to a movie, I will w- look out and consciously try to think, what's the opening image going to be? What's the opening image after the credits? Yeah. And then I get caught up in the story. But as the final credits start to roll, I think, oh, what was the final image? And I see if it does that. And you can go on Vimeo or YouTube and do opening, closing image of famous movies. And it's genius to see what people have done. So anyway, afternoon I write, um, sorry, I walk to the cinema, I go to a mo- or I go to an art gallery or I have coffee with a writer friend, Something which can like be that. incredibly <laughs> inspiring. I call that a, the writer's date. Then I come home and my husband cooks for me. Oh, that is delightful. the best. Get a partner who can cook for you. Okay. Wonderful food. After dinner, we will watch some good TV because we're in a platinum age of television. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's so cool. Right and now, you can learn it? so much. Yes. They know how to write. <laughs> and I would yes. just say at the moment, this will probably date me, but my favorite programs, I think the latest Fleabag was genius. Yes. Um, Chernobyl is amazing. I haven't seen it, but want to. Utterly amazing. Um, I've loved the Kaminsky Method on Netflix. 
Um, Did you see Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes, genius. Love that genius. so much. Oh my gosh, so colorful and so fun. Um, there's so much great, great television. And we watch that and I watch it looking for little tricks I can use in my writing. Even though I'm not writing TV, I'm writing books. So, you know, that's research. I love it. When I love that you say, yes, when you were a writer watching TV. Research, research. that's in inverted commas, but you can imagine I'm doing research now. And I go to the movies alone a lot because you can really take it in then too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just, it's a great life. And stories are so important, aren't they? They're so fan- fantastic. I just, what would life be without stories? And do you have any particular tips that you would like to hand on to people who are trying to write their first book? Yeah, yeah, I I definitely do. I think um, one of the best tips is to make writing regular every day um, for at least 20 minutes um, as regularly as brushing your teeth. I think I said that before. One encouragement is that... um, is writing is rewriting. You've got your vomit draft mm-hmm. and you the, the beats are there and you've got all your little tricks. You rewrite and rewrite and that can be fun, like polishing a stone. In fact, I think of writing, when I show kids, when I go into schools and show kids the seven beats, I have a little wire frame of a man mm-hmm. that's going to be the beginning of a sculpture that you're going to put clay onto that frame, that yes. little wire frame. Oh, that's how I think of it too. Do you? Because some people talk about it as Michelangelo chipping away from a block of marble. No, mm-hmm. don't do that. That stone, you've got a huge mass, you've got to chip away <laughs> to find the stone. Start with the little wire frame, put the clay on, and then the rewriting is the polishing the clay off or smoothing it or adding a little bit here, taking away a little bit there to make it look like a person. And in fact, the seven steps is fun because I often say to kids, um, you know, they say, how can seven steps be every good story? I say, if we were all sitting here as skeletons, we would all look exactly the same because our structure is the same. We have two big leg bones, two big arm bones and a spine and a head, which I think is seven, roughly <laughs> seven big things. It's how you flesh out and clothe your story that makes it unique. So rewriting can be fun. And um, when I went to write my second book, The Secrets of Vesuvius, the second Roman mystery, I thought, I don't need my seven steps. I, mm. I know how to do it now. And I threw it away. And I started writing. It took me 43 proper long drafts wow. um, and a year. And I had to cut out a third of it. And so you just have to, I went back to the steps, but then you rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. And one of my favorite quotes of um, at the front of The Thieves of Ostia from The Independent is that my books are packed with adventure and effortlessly deployed detail called from Pliny and Juvenal. Effortlessly deployed detail. That book took 50 drafts to write. (laughs) So it takes 50 drafts at least to get your writing effortless. I find that encouraging because, you know, people like writers like John Green say the same thing and... I read a book that I think is perfect. Well, actually, I mean, like Frances Spufford on, on Golden Hill, mm-hmm. adult book, one of my favorite books. And I just think I can never, never write like that. I probably can't. But but what I find reassuring is the first draft of almost every book is pretty rubbish. Yes, um, yes. It's, it, it is in the rewriting that it gets. <laughs> well, again, unless you're one of those rare people who's a natural writer, because apparently Alec Guinness wrote his memoir and they didn't make any corrections at all. He wrote it in one go. And I'm just listening to a book on my audio um, called Jupiter's Travels about a guy called um, Ted Simon, I think his name was. He went on a motorcycle trip in the 1970s. And he says he only needed one rewrite. 
you know, so there are those people, but forget there them. Are, but they're Forget rare. them, listeners. Forget about them, listeners. <laughs> the rest of us work really hard. Another great tip I have is at some point, even if your writing is not for kids, read it out loud because you will catch so many things reading it out loud. And it doesn't have to be to someone, though. It's great if you can actually read it to a target audience of the kids you're writing for. That's a great thing. I remember once standing up in front of a class, taking out my manuscript, my work in progress, looking at them and knowing straight away it wasn't (laughs) quite right. It was too adult or something. But if you read it out loud, even in the privacy of your own room to yourself, you hear so many things. I'm so glad you said that. It's such a counterintuitive thing to do at the time, Mm. I think. You're so familiar with it. Mm. You've seen it on your screen Mm. over and over again. It's expensive and difficult to print it out, which Mm. is really the best way of doing this Mm. job. Um, And yet it's so important. Mm. I have never, ever read aloud and not found some really critical things that I wanted to change. And I get my students to, to workshop. In fact, they were doing it last night. And again, three of them workshopped. And I think... What we do, actually, which is an idea that the writer Karen David gave me, is they get someone else in the class to read it out, so they hear it. Yes, yes. And I say, if we say nothing, even just that will tell you probably more than you will yes. ever get from the class. You will just know. Yes. You will just hear what is and isn't working. Yes. And then we can add our own thoughts, but you probably know yeah. already. So, yeah, it's it's such a good tip. And someone, um, one of my other kind of mentors, Saul Stein, I think it was, um, he said, um, when you get someone, when you read it out loud, don't read it with, with drama, read it like in a flat voice. Um, you know, you, they often say, oh, I could listen to that guy reading the phone book. He yeah. said, don't get that guy, get, get someone to read it in a monotone because then the words have to do the work. Oh, don't I accidentally <laughs> switched on the, you know, the automatic read aloud thing. Yeah on my computer so I had a completely flat robotic voice I couldn't bear it oh no <laughs> you don't want to go that far well, maybe I don't robotic think. is too far <laughs> um, but perhaps my final tip would be um, I have a little post-it note on my computer that says have fun because mm. um, when I sat down to write my third book after that really difficult second book which took all the mm. rewrites and I had to cut out a third of it I remember sitting down to write my third book and going Oh gosh, here we go again. And then I thought, wait, wait, you're living the dream. You're being a writer. You're doing what you've longed to do. Have fun. And that book, The Pirates of Pompeii, turned out to be my favorite book. So much fun to write. I've never had so much fun writing a book. It was the only time my husband's had to drag me away from the computer. (laughs) And it's still my favorite book, probably. So my biggest tip is have fun when you're writing. Just play, you know, give yourself permission to have fun. Well, we have the best job in the world, don't we? We do, we do. We get to sit around in our pajamas all day, drinking hot chocolate and making up stories. (laughs) And on that note, Caroline, thank you so much. I've had such a lovely afternoon. Me too. Thank you. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at prepubpodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.